Oh, that's good. All right. Uh, hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to the show. I'm sitting here in the studio uh, with my helper, Wilbur. He's the unofficial producer of uh, What Am I Missing? And sitting across the table with me is Mr. Joel Warren. Joining me today, if you hear thumping, that's Wilbur and Joel playing right now. We're busy. They're busy playing fetch and everything. <laughs> there he is. Um, so uh, Joel is here. It's a, it's a rainy afternoon. Tis. Just like it's been all week, but it's uh, it's nice and cozy in here because we are sitting down to uh, drink hazelnut coffee, the best, the finest of hazelnut coffees. with uh, with hazelnut creamer in it. So it's it's uh, it's like eating a jar of Nutella. It is, and uh, and we're we're gonna talk about uh, Django Reinhardt, mm-hmm. the music of Django Reinhardt. Yes, uh, which I'm very excited about. When you brought it up to me. Um, and said, can I walk you through this experience? I, I did not hesitate. And yeah. usually I hesitate a little bit. Do you have any history with Django Reinhardt? Uh, I did not. Uh, when you brought it up, it was it was kind of unique in that usually I have at least something to say about the topic. Sure. Uh, but I didn't. And then, uh, about three or four days ago, uh, Gemma and I, you know Gemma? I do. Um, we were... We were cleaning, or we were we were listening to music. Oh, we were having breakfast. We were eating breakfast, some nice uh, Belgian waffles that I had made. And in the in the spirit of that, Gemma had put on some French cafe music, and the radio side of it took over. If you like this, then you might enjoy mm-hmm. this. And Django Reinhardt came on, boom, like third song, and I was yeah. like, "Well, that's there's my experience." Thank yeah. you, universe. I have at least one. So, so yes. Yeah, so I, I I listened to one song while eating a Belgian waffle that I nice. made at home. That is that. You know, now that I think about it, I should have brought Belgian waffles as well. But I'm glad that you connected those dots. I'm glad. You know, somebody somebody did for me because it it certainly was uh it it was it transformed my morning. And you know, Django Reinhardt was born in Belgium. Was he really? Yeah. Is that true? Yes. See, that that's true. that's a weird that's a weird coincidence. Then. Yeah. It was it's, like, is he dead? Django is yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. So I, I was going to say... I only draw inspiration from the dead. <laughs> Anyone living, I have too big of an ego to, yeah. to be inspired by. Well, I was going to say the spirit of Django Reinhardt came down and played his own music. And then I was like, I don't know. He, he's got to be dead. He's dead, right? Yeah. He's got to be dead. So um, so that's... Uh, so normally I would open a show and say, here's what I know about it. What am I missing? That's what I know. So it, it played while you ate a waffle. It played while I ate a homemade waffle. So so there's a lot to cover here. So let's, there let's jump into it. What am I missing? Well, uh... You know, I first, I wasn't eating breakfast. I went and saw a movie. It was the first movie I ever went to the Enzian Theater mm-hmm. at, uh, here in Orlando. And uh, when I was in high school, I used to hang, I did theater. Uh, and so I hung out with the theater folk. They were older than I was. Right. And that's actually how I learned about jazz in general, was from a, a friend of mine that I did a play with. Oh, cool. It was much older. But... Uh, I was <laughs> keep saying that they're older. It's not creepy well. It was enough. just you know because of that. It, it, it was creepy. That was the thing. My mother even asked, she "Goes why are you hanging out with all these people that are way older than yeah. you?" And I'm like, they're... "Or more than that, why are they hanging out with you?" That was the real question. Yeah, because I, I I thought it was cool. It was cool that I was there. Right. It was weird that I was there for them. But now that you look back on it, you go, "Wait a minute." What no, was... now honestly, I question it even more. I'm like, why? I don't hang out with teenagers. Oh, you what question your own motivations? No, what were they thinking? Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. At the time, you're like, oh, cool. Older people are hanging out with me. And now yeah. I would look back and be like, wait, what was wrong with them? And, yeah, that I kind of. Uh, <laughs> and I'm still friends with some of them. So, uh, you know, I guess you just. Oh, good. Yeah. But well, shout out if you're listening. To shout this. out. Yes. Oh, it's my friend Jenny. Okay. Who, uh, taught me about. We had done a play together. And, uh, and I said, half truthfully, that I liked jazz music. But I didn't really 
I just liked that station when it came on. Right. I didn't know anything about it. And she was nice enough to give me like a, you know, this was pre-iTunes. So she gave me a CD that was just like, hey, and basically an introductory jazz, you know, volume one. Yeah. Here's what jazz is, kid. Yeah. And uh, I got into it, and then she said, uh, there's this movie playing at the Enzian. And I'm like, yeah, I go there all the time. Never. <laughs> uh, I was like, I'm super artsy, you know? Yeah. Trying so hard to be creative. And uh, <laughs> Jazz, Enzian, independent movies. Yeah, all, all those words make sense Skinny to me. Skinny cigarettes. Yeah, I was just so ready to smoke. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, we went and saw, it was a Woody Allen movie called The Sweet and Lowdown, mm-hmm. which is not about Django Reinhardt, but his character, uh, Sean Penn is the lead in the movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, his... I loved the music in the movie. And she said, oh, well, he's basically playing a Django Reinhardt-like character. And I was like, oh, yeah, of course, now I see that. And I'm like, why? who's Django Reinhardt? You know, just lying my way through the whole thing. Yeah. But that Were you was... hoping to, like, hook up with this girl? No, that you was just the wanted thing. To I, impress no, her? I just wanted to hang out with these people. Right. And they were so cool. And I, I'm like, well, if I hang out long enough, I will then, one day I will know these things and I will be cool. Right. And I'm but like, if I deny knowing any of this, they'll kick me out of the club. I'll only be honest and no one wants that. Right. Yeah. No, no, no. But uh, that was the first time I remember hearing of Django Reinhardt in, in any way. Uh, and then I found some of his music later on in college, you know, uh, most people don't know we went to the same school. We did go to the uh, same school, not at the same time. No, different time. But they did have uh, Cal Arts has a great jazz department, and they always have. Yeah. that's just kind of one of the things they're good at. Yeah, and uh, I got really into listening to live jazz at Cal Arts because it was easy, you know, sure. and free, and there was just tons of it. Sure. And so that's kind of when I more developed, you know, an ear for jazz and an actual appreciation and knowledge of any of one it. One of my roommates uh, at Cal Arts was a jazz musician, so I we got I got a lot of that yeah you had an earful then yeah he was great and i think he's still doing it uh trumpet okay see that i could see as a roommate situation it would be maybe shrill (laughs) maybe not always in the mood yeah i don't remember him ever like really practicing but i do remember like going to see his group or you know so yeah now that you mention it i i did listen to a lot of jazz and and a lot of the jazz kids and teachers at cal arts knew of Sapphire Supper Club, which is not that anymore now, but it's on Orange Avenue. And apparently that was one of the better live jazz venues in the Southeast. Okay. And everybody, they go, oh yeah, I know Orlando Sapphire Supper Club. And I'm like, of course, like, I go, oh yeah, yeah, go all the time. have an annual pass to that. <laughs> You've never been honest in your life, have you? Apparently not. I don't know. I think I've aged into it. Like now I tell the truth, but now right. I actually do know those things. Right. Same stuff. But, um, so fast forward, uh, to uh, later on in college, I realized I I loved Django Reinhardt. He's mm. actually one of my favorite. Now he's become you know it's kind of my go to, which is why I brought it up for today. Cool. But uh, so Django Reinhardt was born in Belgium, mm-hmm. uh, one hundred years to the day before one of my kids' birthdays. Oh, which I found out before coming here. I was looking up. You know, I watched this documentary and they threw his birthday up there. I was like, no way. That's crazy. 100 years. One To the day, yeah. Uh, so, January 23rd, 1, 2, 3, mm-hmm. uh, in 1910, oh. Django Reinhardt was born. Okay. And he was a gypsy. And he was born into a French band of gypsies. Mm-hmm. And there were tons of gypsies in Europe at this time. Uh, and he's from a French family, but they happened to be in Belgium at the time. Right. And they they didn't call themselves gypsies. Apparently, his troop or what, band of I don't know the correct nomenclature, but it was the it's spelled Romani, but I believe it's Roman. 
Mm. I think is how the French say it. Mm -hmm. And so he was a part of this group of gypsies, and and they all would sit around campfires and play music at night. That was just a part of the the routine. Yeah. So by the time he was double digits, he was kind of a virtuoso guitarist. Oh, cool. And uh, his family were back in the Paris area. That's kind of where he spent most of his youth. Mm -hmm. And he would play in these family bands. His dad played piano and uh he had like seven brothers that were also in the band and uh Django was in there and so he kind of hit a point where he was better than everyone mm-hmm. that early wow. and when he was uh in his late teens he just ran away with his wife they just kind of dipped out oh, okay and he started playing and recording and then when he was hold on Wilbur needs to throw, sorry Wilbur is we all have needs. Uh, <laughs> uh, he he was kind of on the, on a, on the right path to becoming a star, and mm-hmm. uh, not necessarily recording, but he was playing a lot, you know, and getting well known. And he was uh, traveling down the road in kind of a covered wagon with his wife, and apparently she made fake flowers out of celluloid, which is an incredibly flammable. Yeah. Uh, material. Yeah. And he lit a candle oh, no. in the, <laughs> in the <laughs> wagon and set the entire caravan on fire. Perfect. And was horribly burned. And his left hand, which uh, is very important, that's what he would fret with, you know. Yeah. And the non-strumming hand, at what, he basically lost the use of his two, of his pinky and his ring finger. Oh. They were deformed and horribly burned and it was to the point where they wanted to amputate his hand. And this is when he's like 17, 18 years old. And he also, one of his legs was paralyzed. From the fire? Yeah. It was that intense. Oh, wow. And uh, how is that even medically possible? I don't know. (laughs) I mean, I I even questioned in uh, in my short amount of research whether Mm -hmm. or not that whole thing was true, but it checked out. Like, I looked to three or four websites, Brett, so it's got to be true. hey, hey. So anyway, he was told, well, obviously you're never going to play again. And he taught himself how to play again, only using uh, his other two fingers. So everything you hear, except for chord work, all of his soloing, and there's a lot of intricate kind of picking you'll hear when I play you some music, Mm -hmm. but it's all with two fingers. That's insane. And he was all self-taught, so he just retaught himself how to play at that same level with these physical limitations. Wow. And it's it's just mind boggling to think what he went through. Yeah. What uh, what happened to the wife? Was she okay? Or she? Um, they ended up splitting up shortly after. Apparently, it was a pretty traumatic <laughs> incident. Uh, but yes, she survived. Okay. Uh, she survived it, and uh, he ended up remarrying year, years later. But mm-hmm. uh, yes, they both survived. I don't know how her flower making business went after that, but probably not well. Probably not. I don't know. As long as you don't set them on fire, I'm sure they're gorgeous. Yeah, don't light a candle. Yeah. Uh, Do you want to hear some? I would love to. I feel like I've talked a lot, and I need to play you what I'm talking about. No, especially knowing now that this is all done with two fingers on his left hand. Yeah. Uh, Okay, this is pressure because it's the first one I'm going to play. So I'm, uh, you know the song Sweet Georgia Brown? Mm-hmm. I'm gonna play you. Uh, I just I just did a Joel. The, good. No, always do that. Yeah. Just okay. lie immediately and then hope the truth falls in place. Yep. Uh, this is a song you may know the tune of once you hear it start playing. But um, I will tell you before you hear anything, the style that Django kind of ended up 
you know, being at the forefront of was this uh, newer style of jazz that they called bebop or waltz. The timing was a little bit different. Yeah. And then most of his groups, there's no um, drummer. Mm-hmm. It's a second guitar that keeps the that rhythm. keeps the rhythm. Yeah. Okay. And uh, it's kind of really demanding because it goes really fast. And then... Um, and they have to keep perfect time because there's no, you know, rhythm section other than them. Yeah. And often it is then complemented with either a violin or a clarinet. Oh, okay. So he tended to match up with someone who played one of those instruments and then they would sort of go back and forth. And I find that his work at its best is when he has a good partner. Mm-hmm. He almost doesn't, he gets a little more effective because there's, to me, there's a challenge in it. And I think that's something that I've identified with. It's yeah. if you have a collaborator to kind of keep you on your toes, you know, and he's a perfect example of that. That's so cool. here's uh, Sweet Georgia Brown. Oh, it's the Harlem Globetrotters thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was a huge fan of the Harlem Globetrotters. <laughs> and this uh, violin player is Stefan Grappelli, who was his favorite collaborator. Uh, they kind of, except for a break in World War II when they were separated by circumstance, uh-huh. they, his his highest highs were with this guy. Okay. So is this one of the earlier songs, or? Uh, it's He recorded the same songs so many times mm-hmm. that uh, this recording isn't, but this isn't the first one of his. Right. You know, uh, he, he recorded some of his hits like 13, 14 different times. Okay. And people, because he changed the solos, uh, so people would listen to the same song each time he released it because it was, you know, totally different. Right. And you can kind of hear it's all this little picky stuff. And he, a lot of his long-standing gigs were just to solo. So he would get hired by these big bands, and they would say, okay, you're going to play five solos. And then he would kind of wait until the break of the song and then just do whatever he wanted oh, wow. for a few minutes. And then everyone would freak out, <laughs> and then the house band would take back over. Yeah. And the guitar was at his primary instrument pretty much throughout his entire life. Yeah, he started uh, on the banjo. That's when he first was a professional musician. He was playing the banjo. Okay. Yeah, but it was sort of like a weird version of the banjo that was more like a guitar. Uh, and uh, then he just went straight to the guitar. And after his injury, it was all guitar. Right. But I believe he also played the violin uh, as a child. Now, he's just kind of a virtuoso. Virtuoso, you know? yeah. He kind of just got it, you know? Yeah. But it was funny because he he had the opportunity to sort of cash in on that post-war jazz craze you know mm-hmm. everybody really got into jazz yeah and, and uh but he didn't like it he could have stayed in the usa and toured you know he toured with a lot of jazz greats at the time one more, one more. and that's one of the only times you'll hear his voice there's another one coming up to me you can hear the like little half smile between two friends that are just screwing around yeah it, <laughs> That's the typical friend. Oh yeah! <laughs> oh, and he's got his little pencil thin mustache. Like he's the perf. To me, he's just Lumiere from Beauty and the Beast. Right. Like I imagine that's what he's doing the guitar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And these two would just go back and forth. But the point is, he always wanted to go back to Paris. By the way, a candle joke is 
It's in bad taste right now. No, it's not. Knowing what happened. I mean, really. <laughs> I didn't even think of that, Brian. Yeah, You're right. Well, after what happened. And they both lived. Who cares? Yeah, we're making connections. Uh, but he, he could have kind of been a superstar and just played his solos with these big bands, you know, and cashed in. Yeah. But he always wanted to go back to these, uh, these gypsy, you know, communes. That's just where he was comfortable. And yeah. uh, he liked to play in Paris that live all the time and improvise all the time mm-hmm. and hook up with these clarinet and uh, violin players that he collaborated well with. And yeah. He sort of was like, well, yeah, I could do whatever I want, but I like this. Right. You know, I kind of admire that. I very much have, you know, obviously on a smaller scale felt the same way. Because I'm like, well, I don't want to go to new york or la and try and be a movie star that's just not the kind of artist i am i like it where i like it yeah there's something um there there is something intriguing about somebody who is just so you know at the uh, at the peak of of their abilities and you know and just so so good and capable and just kind of choosing to be like "Eh, i'm i'm happy just doing it well, yeah, and you know, I, I think that comes back to how do you measure success? Right. You, are you do you are you gratified by the quality of your work? Right. Or, or do you demand a reception to it? Right. Exactly. And and he, you know, it's it's hard to say that about Django because he was famous. Right. And he, you know, did all right, but he never saved any money. He he spent whatever he got. Yeah. Which. I have not done because of him, but I can relate to that too. <laughs> yeah, you know, sure. it's like you have a good year and then you just buy more stuff and it's gone. Uh, yeah, but I think there, you know, there there may be an argument to be made there that um, the the pursuit of the audience um, isn't as important sometimes as the the pursuit of the art, and that if you're good enough and you just continue to you know, uh, output good work that it will find sure. an audience. Absolutely. You know? And and I think that that is, you know, he was perfectly happy living this gypsy lifestyle and playing in the town he liked to play in. Right. And, uh, luckily, he recorded it a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's still, you know, he has a legacy. He, his music did reach, you know, places he never went. Yeah. Uh, after the fact, and he's pretty much become the, the face of what's now regarded as gypsy jazz you know it wasn't really a thing you know and now he's copied by so many different groups and uh and just guitar players in general i think that some of the fingering techniques that he's used and the chord progressions that just hadn't been heard before have found their way into blues you know right which obviously has its own wealth of material to draw from but just people who are good at something listen to other people who are sure and so you know not that Clapton is playing Django covers, but every now and then you can hear something. And go, oh, okay, right. I, I know. I see that. You know. Well, it is cool because you know it, it is kind of uh, you know it does sound just based on what you've sort of told me. There is, you know, he did kind of. It does sound like he kind of came up in a vacuum, mm-hmm. uh, kind of just learning it, learning it for himself without any sort of. I guess formal teaching telling him like no you can't do it this way or you must do something right. this way and so discovering the sound for himself and then having the the circumstances with the fire in his hand yeah. trying to then recreate the same sounds with you know sort of less you know uh, less tools in which to do it yeah which maybe you know it's like you say 
you know, when you're only given a couple of things to work with, you have to become, your mind has to make up the difference yeah. with creativity. And you have to, yeah, and then, but then, but then all of a sudden it's like it opens you, it opens you up to possibilities that you wouldn't have ever thought possible. Absolutely. Had somebody else been telling you, like, this is the way that it always is. Yeah, well, and he, it, and the more I looked into the gypsy culture, yeah, I, you know, people always use gypsies as like a, uh, a, a kooky side character, you know, when you look at these period pieces. But yeah. it always fascinated me. I'm like, well, what were they doing? Like, why were, they, why did they even do that? And I just watched um, Peaky Blinders on mm-hmm. Netflix, and there's a huge gypsy role in that series. And, right. Uh, and so I've just kind of it's been on my mind. So I looked at it before I came here, and I mean, there were in the era where the Django came out of, they suffered through World War II like the rest of Europe. But right. But to an extent that I did not know. I mean, there were like 600,000 of them that died during, you know, the Holocaust. Right. And they were specifically... Like concentration camps yeah, and stuff. Because yeah, they were gypsies. Because they were gypsies. Right. So it was just another thing on the list of what you couldn't be. And they had their own mark, you know, that they had just like the numbers on the wrist and they, you know, the, the triangles. I, can't, I think it was a gray triangle, I believe. Mm-hmm. But they were persecuted just because they were gypsies. Right. And the only reason he survived was because he was already famous. Is that right? He tried to escape France like three times because he knew, you know, with yeah. his, he, he had a, he got married again years after the flower lady took off. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and they kept trying to leave, uh, even though he loved Paris, he didn't feel safe there. So he kept, and he was captured once and apparently a German, um, soldier liked his music and that's why he got to, oh, and like recognize he, He's him? like, go back to Paris. Wow. And so he played and one of his biggest hits, which I'll play for you is actually, it might've been his biggest hit is a song that became an anthem for people during world war two that were living there hoping to survive. Oh wow. And it sold like a hundred thousand copies, which was crazy during the war, during the war. Yeah. Sure. Uh, in Paris, you know, cause, and France had a weird part in world war two anyway, you know, they like rounded up anybody they thought would get kicked out before they had to. Right. And kind of, there was a lot of weird stuff going on. Yeah. Uh, at a weird time. Yeah. You know, it was even weird for them, but, um, he was there, and he wrote this song, which I'll, I'll cue up here. But you know, the, I was speaking of the gypsies. They they had a, a rough gig. You know, they basically would steal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, as a child, uh, Django was apparently well known because he was good at stealing chickens. And that <laughs> Specifically, was, and it's always mentioned. Yes, like Django stole chickens well. And uh, huh. the, and and their the Roman name apparently means of man. Like they were the. There's all the aristocracy, and, the, and they, they were just people. They're everyone else. Right. And so we live off of the bad people. We take what we need. You know, there's a very, like, Robin Hood-type vibe to these. Yeah. But they didn't have a fun life, necessarily. It was really hard. They lived out in these camps. Right. And I think that he probably found joy in that life through getting to play music with yeah. his family and friends. So, th- th- well, I think- and it makes sense that later on, then, he would just kind of be content just staying where he was i'm sure yeah. you know and just being like no this is this is my home i don't need to keep moving around like i've done enough of that and probably a reluctance to join that level of society because he used to steal chickens from him right you know you right you don't go to the places you used to steal from and, <laughs> right and not feel like a dick yeah <laughs> you know for, yeah because he knew and I, I i admired that i think that's cool you know yeah well and i'm sure that there were i'm sure there were biases 
coming from that side as well For about sure. the upper crust of society or the people that they were stealing the chickens from that he yeah. sort of had ingrained or grew up with being told like these people are this way and then right you know they don't care about you they don't accept you but then he finds a level of success with his music and suddenly they're like oh you're you're worth something to right. us join us and he kind of went like no, no. you didn't want me before right and when, it's you it, know and it and i think it i don't know what what was going on in his mind but it was at that point i would wonder if you were accepted by either group Right, because man without a yeah, you wear uh, a white tuxedo and you play this kind of music for rich people all day long, and then you go back to the gypsy camp and they're like, "Well, wait, you were hanging out with them all day." Yeah, you know, so I don't know, but isn't that kind of the way to do it? Yeah, that's kind of the history of jazz in general, though. Yeah, you know what I mean. For a lot of a lot of jazz uh, artists and you know conductors and you know Count Basie and you know and all, it was just like you know. They, they were accepted, but they still had to kind of right. leave out the back door and, you know. Well, and it's interesting, too, because any of these visionaries, too, it's like they have to kind of follow their own path. So it's hard to fit in when you're doing something so different. Yeah. You know, and I, I went through a big Coltrane phase, too, and he... He found it. Well, he was also on heroin, which can't help. But he he like had a hard time because he was doing it differently, you yeah. know. And he he played in these big bands with other famous people, you know. And uh, he played with Miles Davis for a long time, and, and then and he got kicked out of a couple of those bands because on account of the heroin. Because of heroin. But sure. uh, you just you can't do that. No. But uh, then he kind of cleaned his act up and recorded like everyone's favorite albums. Mm-hmm. In a row, right? And then died <laughs> right. in his forties, and he's like, "Oh man!" And and Django died at like forty three or forty nine. I mean, he was young. Yeah, he just had a stroke, and he was around a bunch of gypsies, and it took too long for a doctor to get there, and he died. Oh wow! Because they just didn't have a doctor. <laughs> They're like, "We can steal you some chickens," but uh, <laughs> right. If you need a doctor, that's going to be a minute. We can't see you no medicine. We <laughs> no gypsy doctor. Okay, <laughs> so this song is called, and I don't speak French, but it's Nuage. And uh, this is the song that became the anthem. And actually, I'm gonna find. I have a. I'm gonna play a live version of this one from Belgium. Oh, this is the album where the that waffles I, come from. Yeah. Have you ever been to Belgium? I've never been to Belgium. It's cool. Yeah. It is. It, you, I think I fell into the trap of doing the stereotypical things you're supposed to do when you go to a place. Mm-hmm. But like, I went to Belgium for a day. I was in Holland, and there was like a a day trip to Bruges and Ghent. Yeah. And it was awesome, but I was like, I want a waffle, I want chocolate, and I want beer. <laughs> and that's all I did, but it was wonderful. That's great. I'm sure it was wonderful. And I yeah. looked at some old stuff, and yeah. it was really pretty. Okay, this is this uh, Nuage, the song that uh, became his beacon of hope. Nuage. 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 This is this was recorded in '48. So a hit already, right? Everybody at the everybody at this live recording knew all the words to this. What they were. <laughs> <laughs> So when you say this sort of became an anthem, does that mean it sort of became uh, like uh, uh, 
like a, uh, an act of defiance to play it? Well, I don't know. I, you know, I think it was kind of probably everything was an act of defiance for the people who liked <laughs> what he was, you know, right. standing for. Right. It was sort of for the people who weren't supposed to be there, you know. So for them, I would think, yeah. Yeah. It, it probably would be. I don't know. I, that wasn't a, anything I heard. Right. I just know that it. that's when and why it gained popularity. Mm-hmm. Because they felt that if, you know, obviously the song, they liked the song, but it came from him. Right. Well, and, yeah, it becomes you know, like a common, like, language of, you know, he's one of us. And there's a sadness to the song. I mean, you kind of hear there's like a sort of lament to it, you know? Yeah. And then he's... I mean, his solos are just bright. You know what I mean? So it's kind of an odd contrast. You know, most of his stuff is kind of peppy. Yeah. And to me, this song just has kind of like a beautiful sadness to it. Right. You know? I Which obviously was how the people were feeling. Yeah. Well, it's just very, you know, it, listening to this more and more, I can I can see why it showed up on the the list of like the French cafe mix. You oh know, yeah, where you can feel like, fancy to this. Well, yeah, it's just it's it's just got it almost. I don't know if this is like this is the uh, this sort of predates a lot of like what we think of as like stereotypically like French. Oh, like music, a, like yeah, like guitar and accordion type of stuff. Yeah, yeah. like like uh, Wes Anderson, you know, like mm-hmm. whatever um, style where it's just like it's just like very, like you said, it's kind of melancholy. But then there's a there's a there's an odd peppiness to it, or there's an odd just like yeah. That's to me. That's the thing about it is, it's good atmosphere music. But then when you dig into it and you listen, there are so many moving parts to it. Right. That. That's why I keep listening to it, yeah. especially these live recordings. I've got tons of these on, you know, I just, I put them on shuffle and, you know, and you can hear the same song over and over, but he takes it to different places. Right. And I find that fascinating. Well, I'm know? sure you find something new every single time you listen to it. Yeah. And even in the, you know, it's like people who are into the Grateful Dead or, you know, they're like, yeah, but have you heard this version of it? You know, <laughs> right. Nuts. Yeah. You know, and you're like, it's the same song. Right. Yeah. yeah. But I, I do understand that. And, and as an actor, you know, we, we're required to do the same thing many times. Yeah. And people always say, it's like it's the first time. And I'm like, that's an insult to my experience because it's not like it's the first time. Right. I, I've had so many experiences with this that it's like, it is like the thousandth time, but in a great way. Right. Because I'm comfortable with where I am, where I've been, and where I'm going. So now I can really, yeah, you know, let you see some stuff, you know? Well, and it, yeah, because it does, uh, yeah, that's an interesting thought. I've never thought about it that way, but you, you want to... I guess you want to, you, you do kind of want to give off the experience, or as if you know you're hearing something for the first time. But then, right. but then the response, you want to, you want to keep perfecting it. You want to keep, yeah, deepening you it. You want to, yeah, you want to master the response. You want to, you want to act like you're hearing it for the first time, but you want to respond like you've been hearing. You know, or I, I don't know, I don't quite know what I'm saying. You know, but just well, yeah, that's it. And it doesn't get stale. It doesn't become something you resent right or, or that you i hate the the idea of people say phoning in that i hate the idea of that concept right of not being present yeah you know regardless of whether or not you're improvising or doing something 
you've done a thousand times. Yeah. To me, there's no difference, you know. Well, because it's like the music. There is something new to discover every single time. Yeah, some, some, as long as you're there. Some word or new part of the sentence that you never realized had a significance to the rest of the scene. Yeah. That the first time that you heard it, you wouldn't have made those connections. But, you know, if you do something long enough, you start to go like, oh, the beginning of this scene actually references what happens yeah. later on and I can I can play that and yeah. I can sort of like build those connections absolutely and you to know? watch someone who you know you mar- if you marry effort with talent that's when great stuff happens right. I think a lot of not talented enough individuals or artists do work that hard right, right. just can't hit where somebody like Django goes in and isn't bored even though he's doing something he's done a thousand times right so you get to watch a master find new things right that i i I, my ears may not even understand what he's discovered in that particular performance but i can hear that it's great you know yeah and it feels whole yeah and i think yeah i think i think you're right there's something to the language of like well treat it like it's your first time because then that can make that can make artists complacent Mm mm-hmm you know, or just at least be present in this time. Don't yeah. do it like you did it before, because that's impossible. It's a different day, you know, whatever. Yeah. And uh, you know, I've I've often tried to articulate that that point to either you know actors when I'm you know directing something or or when we're you know when we do improv and stuff. It's like well, I don't care what we do. Just be there. Be there right. for me, and yeah. I'll be there, and we'll see what happens. And, uh, you know, I've always been told, well, you don't care. You just do whatever. And I'm like, yeah, but whatever, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Whatever's going to happen, I'm I'm there for it. Yeah. You know? And, and that's, I mean, that's definitely true. <laughs> um, you know, it's one of the, I think, magical things about watching you in particular, um, you know, on stage, but, but it's specifically in your improv scenes that you are, you are game for whatever. Yeah. But you accept it 100% and and dive in a thousand percent. Yeah, you know, and, and, and you're I, like, that's what you want to do. Great, let's explore it. Let's do that. And that can be that can be scary to people, right? Who, um, you know, if they're not prepared for that, presenting you with maybe what they intended to be like half an idea, sure, you know, to accept it as like a whole and just be like, great, show me what you got. Yeah, you know. And, but it's and that's I mean I've I've always been uh, frustrated by. Um, my own lack of musical talent mm-hmm. because I've always wanted to jump in with a group of musicians and do it too. Right. I just can't. But discovering improv, it's like, oh, it's, I can, this is it. It's about as close as you can get. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, yeah. I, I, I used to work at a theater and I booked an improv show there one time and I was trying to explain to them, you know, like what it, someone on the board was a, a jazz uh, musician. Mm-hmm. And I said, it, it's like jazz, but in, on stage, you know, <laughs> I said everybody's just doing, and he, that's kind of what Jazz sold him. Never on played it. on stage. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you know what I mean. <laughs> well, it was funny because I had booked jazz there a bunch of times because it was easy. You know, they liked it already. Yeah. And I was like, no, we'll get. The, it's the same. I said it's the same high. Watching good jazz when you see a bunch of people who they've got the chops, but they're gonna just go off and do whatever. Yeah. And it, you know, there's something to that, and there's something to being an audience. For that type of music or improvisation, you know, as far as as actors or whatever goes, yeah. just watching people create something that you know that they're just 
creating for you right and that you're the only one you know it, 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 I think it grabs the audience in a different way and you know as an audience member that you know the difference between an artist whether it's improv or, or jazz or, or scripted work you know when somebody's giving you all of themselves yeah. moment to moment and when they're not yeah. and whether or not you can articulate that or understand why you were moved by a certain piece or what it yeah. was about it that attracted you to it you know you know even if you don't have the language you know that when you walk out you're like that was good yeah <laughs> you know and sometimes that's and sometimes you then have to go see it again because right. you don't actually know what just happened right you're like I, that hit me well it com- yeah it, it compel it should compel you to go see more of it yeah and i think i know we're talking about jazz here but we did get on the improv uh, train a little bit that's that's my issue with a lot of improv is that bad improv is a lot of audiences uh, audience members first experience sure and it it shuts people off yeah from ever wanting to experience it again because it is easy and I and I assume that jazz is very similar I'm sure there's a lot too. of bad jazz out there well, yeah I mean I, yeah <laughs> I think there's a lot of bad out there I think Period. there's a lot of bad art out there there is because it's hard for and this isn't to sound um, elitist but it's I think it's hard for let's say the general public to know the difference immediately right or where to get good right. Right. fill in the blank art you know whether it be classical music you know a lot of people roll their eyes when you see classical music you hear good classical music and you're like whoa I get it I get why we're still listening to this yeah or same with jazz people hear it and they think it all sounds the same until you play them you know Coltrane or Miles Davis or you know or Django and then they go oh this this sounds different to me there's something about it yeah so I think you just have to be careful what you buy (laughs) you know yeah same with literature how many crappy books are out there that are popular right but or keep keep going back even if something's not immediately for you sure don't give up on it don't give up on it immediately you know and you may find that something isn't over time you know in your wheelhouse or something that you enjoy but but still it's just like you can go and you can go see like a a, a, sh- a version of Les Mis and and you know and and it may be even like good and it could touch you but there's just like I don't know there's something interesting to me where it's like you can do a show and you can do it up to a certain point a certain level of quality where people will walk out and they'll be like that was good yeah but they may not think about it the next day or they may you know it's like once they leave the auditorium it's just like oh that was good and then they go along their way you know and it's just like it could just be uh, the the small the smallest tweak or the the you know the 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 changing of uh, of 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 one actor for another or something yeah. that just takes it from like that was good to oh, oh my god yeah I gotta buy a subscription, you Absolutely. know, or whatever it is, and it's just like, and it's all, and that's how you find your people. That's like, I had a, a mentor that he said, my goal with any theater that I run is that I want people to come see it because we're doing it, not because they know what it is, or not because they've heard of the play we're doing. Right. They just trust us with right. their evening. Yeah. And he said, I want to get it to the point where they'd watch us read the phone book. Yeah. <laughs> because they think that the way we read the phone book would yeah. be just brilliant. You know? And yeah. it's like, yeah, that's that's what consistent quality does. The draw is is, is the people. It's not necessarily the, the product. Yeah. And he, uh, same thing, he also told me, and this has always stuck with me, is that 
you know, brilliance is not an evening. Brilliance is repetition. Mm-hmm. Brilliance is consistent quality. Yeah. You'll have great nights, but you always have a lot. And that's why I've my philosophy on performing has always been a thousand percent in the moment, never less than that, because to me, I, I couldn't possibly do it correctly any other way. Well, what's... You know? I, I, and maybe some people can. It's just not my game, you know. No, I, some people certainly do. You know, um, I mean, I think we've both seen that play out many times. Sure. Um, but and in my, you know, my my thing is always like, why why do it then if you're not willing to? If we've been given this, uh, if you're still with us, uh, this is getting very meta and and heady and very masturbatory. But um, so thank you for sticking along with us. Hopefully, I'm. I'm in it. Hopefully you're nodding <laughs> nodding your head along in agreement with us. But um but but I'm like if if you if you have been given this gift of an opportunity to uh, perform and express yourself and your art for people who are willing to pay their hard earned money in order to hear and see it, yes. then why wouldn't you want to give them all of yourself every single time? Yes, absolutely. And 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 to me, and and it's sort of like a personal philosophy of the moment that I go out there and I'm not willing to do that. And yeah. certainly I'll have nights where I'm tired, you know, with improv or whatever it is, where I'm just like, you know, uh, I don't, I don't really want to engage in this tonight. But but it's always done with the feeling of, but I, but I will, you know, it's yeah. it's that thing of like. It's almost it's a temporary thing, and that's also. I mean, I've I've worked with you enough. Like, I've felt that way too. But like, for those who share at least what we're talking about, agreeing on, as soon as the show starts, that just goes away. You can't help it because you're like, well, now I'm doing it because you you may or something happens. You connect with the audience immediately, and you're like, oh, right, we're doing this. Well, and because you may have done something a thousand times, like we said before, but for the audience, it's their first one, and it's like you know, and I always. I don't know. It's just, it's interesting to get back to like Django Reinhardt and stuff too, to, 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 to be where he was with his abilities and with his art and just kind of insisted on just doing it his way, doing it his way. Yeah. And, and I, and, and, and knowing, having the faith and the ability uh, to, to know that that's where he belonged and that it was going to, transcend it was going yes. to permeate if yeah. it was meant to. and he knew the difference he went to america he did tour the u.s mm-hmm. uh so it's not like he was afraid to go anywhere right uh you know he toured all over europe and he had a lot of success but uh this note right here is like so shrill i can't talk over it i have to tell you i listened to this my dogs hate that song <laughs> They they put up with what I play while you know I, I, my kids go to school when kids go to school and that's when I do all of my writing mm-hmm. and I often put this on you know right and they they're like okay whatever it's just chill at least and then every now and then that clarinet will just <laughs> it'll set them off for dog ears that's like a punch in the face <laughs> yeah that's a big deal yeah but anyway I, talking about Django you know and and sticking with our meta <laughs> self reflective theme here yep I I was thinking about okay so this guy chose to not ditch the gypsy lifestyle ever. Mm-hmm. He liked going in and playing for the rich people because he made a lot of money and you know it was fun. Sure, and and that was you know stole that's the Super chickens. Bowl. He stole some chickens. I hope I hope as an adult he every now and one. then was like you know what it's a chicken stealing night. Yeah, but he 
And I thought, I've had friends. I just, I, I met up for a cup of coffee today with one of my roommates from CalArts. Mm. He's in New York. He does really well. He's in lots of films and stuff. And he always gives me the, why don't you come? Dude, you do so well. And that's not how he talks. That's just my impression for every man. Sure. You understand. Uh, and I hear that from kids who stayed in LA as well. And they're like, why don't you come out here? You'd book stuff. And I'm like, because I don't want to. Right. That's not what I want to do. Yeah. And, the, and the way that I do this, the way that I do what I do is so like wild that I can't hustle or try to book a spot on a sitcom with my brand that I've just, you know, yeah. I don't, I've had the same headshots since I graduated from CalArts. Oh yeah. I, I literally have not tried to do anything other than good work, yeah. you know, or if it was like a silly show, then have fun doing that silly show. But you know, I haven't hustled at all. Right. And it's, you know, there is a ceiling on the amount of, you know, fame or whatever you can achieve with that outlook. Right. But I don't care about that. I well, just like doing stuff. And so I, you know, I look at Django and I go, Oh, me too, man. Yeah. I get it. Like I like living in Orlando and drinking my coffee and listening to jazz. Well, because and it, improv, we kind of you, know? you kind of touched on this before, but but it does it does presume that fame equals success and that non-fame or non-attempting fame is fear or whatever. Right. It's like, I, no, I'm aware. Right. I've been to LA. I've been all over the world. I'm I'm good. Yeah. I like this. And I feel like success, and it may include a level of fame or a level of recognition, but I feel success is. Uh, achieving a level of um, of of comfortability and just and and you know, are you able to do what you want to do mm-hmm. when you want to do it, and still like be able to make a living doing right. it? And for me, I'm right there with you. I feel yeah. like being down here in Orlando affords me not only an audience. Um, For sure, but which is not the case everywhere. Which is not the case. We are everywhere. incredibly lucky in many ways. For yeah. the venues, the fact that it is a big city, you know, it's right. not the biggest, but it is. There are a lot of people here, right? And and there are nine thousand theaters. And, you know, we get to do whatever we want. And, and and that's the thing because it's not being run by the corporations. It's yeah. not being run by the studios. It's not being you know. And so it's like there isn't a. If you went out to L.A. or New York, you would be beholden to the visions of other people for sure. a very long time. Yeah, and, you know, and, out of necessity. Out of necessity, uh, yeah. because you would be you would you would be hustling. You would have to you would be auditioning for the things that other people you know. And it's just like you would have to spend years of your life trying to and that's not to say that this is all bad not at all but you would you that's would, how things are done I mean that's absolutely I, and like we we know people who have done that and, and they succeeded. break through and they yeah, and it's great and they do get to do good work and yep. they are still acting and they're getting to do things that are artistically fulfilling for them and I think that's awesome too but yep. I also know a lot of like 35 year old waiters who would kill to just perform right and I'm like well I I'm not bragging, but I'm like I have to perform every day because exactly. that's my job. But exactly. it's awesome. I'm having a great time. Exactly. With it, you know. And so. how many people? How many people can actually say like they're a professional improviser? You know, who gets to go out every? It's just like, and and it's because it's because I think the metric for what success is 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 different. Yeah. And the way that, you know, from, from CalArts, it was sort of like my definition of success for me was like, am I doing what I want to do? Yeah. And when I moved to New York after CalArts, it was like, no, because I'm taking reservations at a restaurant on the Upper East Side. Right. For people who 
are doing what they want. On the phone would constantly say, do you know who my boss is? And it was like, this isn't what I care about, you know? So It's hard to pretend you care about things you don't care about. Exactly. Which is the, uh, you know. And especially when your job requires you to care about those things, it becomes harder and harder. Yeah. Well, and, and it's it, like... Yeah, yeah absolutely. Hey, as I'm much in, as I talked about being a liar in my teen years, I now have found such an honest, <laughs> right. constantly overly honest yeah. way of being... I, I couldn't do that. Yeah. I just can't pretend to care about uh Well and something that some I stuff. something that I found uh in New York and kind of one of the things that made me want to get out of there, I think, and uh you know, um I'm not again shitting on anybody who is up there, but for myself, it was what I found was there was an attitude, especially of people sort of within my immediate um not group of friends, but like I guess uh, uh, income, <laughs> you know, whatever yeah. it was. Where Your tax bracket? Yeah, my tax <laughs> bracket. Thank you. Um, was that it was an attitude, not of I love living in the city because of the opportunity affords, right? But it's I'm surviving, and I love that I can tell that story. Surviving is oh, that's no way to be. And, and the that, moment yeah. that I realized that, where it was just like, you love telling everybody that you're making it day to day. Yeah. And that you're somehow not dying from starvation or dying from like... Your your greatest achievement is the bare minimum of existing. Yep, yep. And that is, yep. th- that's rough. I woke up this morning in New York City and therefore that's that's my, you know, that's that's where I... That's where I define success, and I just I and I just looked at that and I heard that enough, and I went, no, this well, isn't going to do is, it for me. Yeah, that's that's one of those things that I, you know, I hate to say that a generation, but our generation mm-hmm. <laughs> sort of does that. They celebrate existence, right? And uh, you know, that's fine. But well, it, I mean, it is you know to a certain extent it is almost out of necessity. It is sort of just the. It's just hard in a first world country to, to buy into it, if, right? If you've been anywhere else, yeah. It's like, yeah. Well, uh, well, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, but I don't think that's a great of an achievement. Maybe you know. Yeah. But especially because yeah, it is a bit. It is a bit false. It is a bit sure. It's like it's you know it's the show Survivor. It's just like. You know, yeah. craft services is right behind the camera. You guys, you know, and, and it's like, I can't so, believe I have to live at my mom's mansion. <laughs> like, Wait <laughs> right. a minute. Right. <laughs> you kidding yeah. me? Yeah. You know, and I, I, w- I did, uh, I've traveled a little bit for work uh, to weird places, but I've always, uh, and a lot of times I've spoken the language, so I, I put music on and watch people live. Mm-hmm. That's just something I've enjoyed in my travels. Yeah. And I've found that uh, the two best ones are Django Reinhardt and, like, 90s old-school rap. Oh, okay. Like, De La Soul, Tribe Called Quest, like, really? that type. And I, I spent, like, uh, three months in Shanghai. Mm-hmm. And on my... I had an hour-and-a-half subway ride, and I would either put... Uh, Django Reinhardt or a mix of like basically Tribe Called Quest and Dale Soul. Right. And just watch Chinese people live their lives. And it was fascinating. Yeah. You know, because I couldn't talk to anybody. Very few people on the subway spoke English. Yeah. And, uh, but I was watching them live in China. Not yeah. visit for three months on a fun work trip where it's all sexy you and I have a corporate credit card and like. And I could have hung out with those people that were like me and could have just gone to Papa John's every day. Cause they, you know, they, but I like went to China, China and watched what was going on. Right. And, you know, 
it's hard for some of them because they don't make any money. Sure. And there are a lot of people. There's a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah. And to kind of... Django, not really. That actually probably fit well. But to listen to the hip-hop in comparison to what they were doing, living their lives, Mm -hmm. and going through real struggles and stuff like that. That's why when, when people complain about things part of the reason i got rid of facebook i just <laughs> i was get, I, I was becoming judgmental right because of the, I, you know people are like oh man i don't feel like going to my job today <laughs> right see, like but on the other hand too it was it was like it was it was i guess i didn't necessarily personally want to become part of the crowd that was uh satisfied or becoming complacent in just surviving yeah you know and that's not to say that the people who who i heard that message from weren't struggling yeah uh, some of them were i was and and first world problems are still real problems absolutely i mean those aren't those are real things and, i mean my internet goes out and i freak out could so i have you know and it's like, like could i have uh I mean, I was with Gemma at the time. She was my girlfriend at the time, you know. But but what could I have oh, like in New York? Yeah. In New York, you know. But could I have moved back home if need be? Sure. Yeah. You know, were there opportunities? It's not like I had nowhere to go. Right. But I also had, um, you know, I had a I had a night where there was no food in the apartment. I was starving. Yeah. And I, I had no money in my bank account, and I happened to have a scratch-off lottery ticket uh, for $5 that I went and cashed and used it to buy a slice of pizza. And it was just like... Yep, it that's was, survival. It was very momentary and just very like, I have to eat this now, and I don't know what I'm going to do yeah. tomorrow morning, but this is all I can focus on. So certainly I've had those moments. And, and I, I'll be honest, there is a certain romance after the fact of that. There is a romance, but 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 it was realizing like... People were romanticizing it and saying, this is the reason why I'm glad I'm here. Yeah, but no one's going to, I mean, not because I, because I, but no one's going to remember you for that. Right. Because I got through the struggle of it. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm continuing to struggle for it. I was like, no, I got it. That's not my my story. No, no, no. And I didn't want it to be. Yeah. You know? And so. Uh, so I yeah, get no, no one. No one wants your eulogy to be like Brett made it till now, <laughs> right? I guess. Well, I guess that's over. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. You know. So. So. Yeah. I think. I think to get back to the original point, there is, there is something uh, recognizable in the fact that he kind of lived the life. You know, traveled around, saw what there was to offer, probably heard what everybody was saying oh, yeah. about. Well, this is what successful jazz musicians do, and he went, no, not for me. Yeah. I'm hanging out with my chicken stealing friends. Yeah. Because that's, you know. Yeah. And obviously they did. It's not like they shunned him or they wouldn't. he wouldn't have gone back. You right. Know, which is cool. You yeah, know? yeah. It's like when, when someone in a group of friends, like for us, we're actors. One, if one of our friends gets on a TV show and all right. of a sudden is on TV and you know, people are like, oh, you know so-and-so. It's yeah. Like, yeah. And, and, you know, it can go either way. Some of the people you don't hear from anymore. Right. And, well, and, that, and that's what I was just going to say. I think then it comes down to attitude yeah who you, you know are. what i mean who, who you, you really are. are yeah if Absolutely. you stay in touch and you're humble and you continue to be the same person you just happen to have a higher paying higher profile acting gig right you know 
but certainly there are there are people that we know who who sort of get those gigs and then suddenly start treating it like, well, now I'm successful. So yeah, y- you know, you're not. You're still down in the dregs working at blah 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 blah. Yeah, you know, and it's just like, oh man, that's yeah. a shame. <laughs> I've I've always had to tell. Uh, I've hung out with some of my friends who've done quite well, and I have. It doesn't happen anymore, but for a while it was. I had to explain that I was happy. Right. So that we didn't have to have an awkwardness. I'm like, you can talk about all the cool stuff you get to do. Yeah. I like what I do, and I'm having a blast, and it's okay. And yeah. I'm not jealous. Yeah. That's the you know the, that's right. the thing that I have to get out, and, and and that's you have to just be willing to say it, or else you can't really have a relationship with someone. Yeah. Who's thinking that the whole time? Right. You know. Yeah. And I always say, you know, I'm, I, this is so awesome that you get to do this. Of course. You know. It, and and I'll be like, and frankly, it's cool that I know people who get to do this stuff. Yeah. You know, because I'm here too. Yeah. You know, you end up going to parties you would not have been invited to. Yeah. You just have to get over that part and enjoy the party. Well, and I've never, you know, I've never been shut off to the idea that, that something couldn't take me back to New York or L.A. Yeah. You know what I mean? But it would have to be very project specific and it would have to be something that was worth doing it. You know, so right. it's not a it's not a question of like, you know, shunning that type of yeah. success or project is just like it's just not what's happening right now it's not what's happening right now yeah we made uh, yeah we did my friend Ross and I did a parody video about Orlando and there's a line in it that says uh, I'm moving to LA and the guy says you've been saying that for six years <laughs> and the, it came from a conversation over this exact kind of coffee yeah uh, in my kitchen between Ross and I, I said what bothers me is people who are here Right. Because they're gonna move to New York or they're gonna move to LA. Right. I'm like, yeah, but you're here. Right. So what are we gonna do? And they're like, well, I'm really getting ready to move. To-. I'm like, what if you get hit by a bus before you get there? Yeah. What were you doing until then? Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say something very controversial, possibly, but it it there I do have opinions about that because there are uh, individuals who. And I heard this in L.A. too, or I heard this uh, when I lived in Nebraska. Sure. You know, or people from Nebraska who are like, I'm going to go out to L.A., I'm going to move out to New York, I'm going to take over, you know, and, and sure. like it's just going to be, and it's and it's said in a way that, you know, you want a certain level of confidence to go out and do those things, but it's said with a with a, with an amount of ease that, yeah. that doesn't indicate to me that they, that, that these people actually know what they're getting themselves into. You know what I yeah. mean? Where it's like, I'm going to go to New York. I'm going to be a star. And it's like, you're not even a star in Lincoln yet. You know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? It's like, you're not even the biggest thing in Omaha. What makes yeah. you think you're going to move out to Wait L.A.? Get a load of this. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? And, and that, yeah. like that to me has always been like this weird disconnect between like fantasy and reality where it's just like more power to you. Totally. But, hey, I'll see you. I'll see you in six months. Yeah. You know what I mean? Be because back. Because you, it's... It's that level of expectation that that you will that will crush you. Yeah, and and to be, I mean, it would be different if it was a different field. You know, I think even if it was athletic, you know, if it was like I go to the gym or you know whatever my sport is, I, I practice, I play as much as I can, and then I go to the highest level. But like, when you're talking about an artistic thing, for me, there's a certain amount of comfort that I demand to be able to do it at the highest level for me. Right. And if I can't achieve that level of, you know, of ease and of comfort and of not being nervous and not being inhibited in any way, what, what good am I? Mm -hmm. And, you know, so, you know, I've always, and I've always used music too, 
to kind of get to where I need to be before, you know, a, a, like a challenging thing. I did it. I've done it. I did a one-man show once, and then it's rough because you know, I love collaborating with people. Yeah. And to be out there by yourself is it was hard for me because I'm like, what if I start going down the wrong road? I'm the only one on it <laughs> other than right. the audience. And it was a show that was, <clears throat> this ties in because I, I tried to get them to use Django in this production, but it didn't have it. But it was a, a French, the, the concept of the show is it was a French street performer mm-hmm. who was um, pulled into a train station uh, to be sent to a concentration camp because it was decided that his street performances were subversive. So he performs all of the street routines for the officers to show them that they're not. Wow. So that he'll, his life will be spared. And the audience plays the role of the officers, so he's talking to them directly. Mm-hmm. And it, it's performing for his life. Yeah. And I, you know, the, I worked at this community theater in Mount Dora, just north of here. And the guy who ran the theater uh, left and said, okay, you, you know, you've got, you're going to run the theater here, and I'm moving to South Africa. Oh. And I'm like, as you do, yeah, you know. And then he and he opened a little theater, and and he let me come do this show there. So this was the show in South Africa. In South Africa. Oh wow. And I did this this show. And the reason why was he's like, I can't afford to bring you out here and have to rehearse with other actors, and I can't bring more than just you out here. So if you want to come to Africa, you have to do this one man show, <laughs> and you have to come and just do it. Right. And I was like, okay. So. And I'd never done a one-man show either, so it was really... I did a, a short one at Cal Arts as, you know, as a scene showing type of thing. Right, 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 right. This was like, people were going to pay to see this. <clears throat> right. And uh, and it took place during this Django era in France, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, it was a really hard place to start for me as a performer. Like, perform for your life, you know? Yeah. And to connect to an audience that I didn't know culturally... I'd never been to Africa, anywhere in Africa. And I was in a weird area of South Africa where there were mansions. And then on the other side of a fence, there was a township. Mm. And I didn't know, I didn't even know if I was in a good place, you know, like safety wise. Oh, or, or if I was representing something I believed in. I didn't know what I was doing. Right. I just kind of went there. Right. It was pretty wild. <laughs> and and uh, the only way I could get over it, the circumstances of where I was, what I was doing, was to listen to this it wasn't Jacob Reinhardt but I found this like seven minute guitar solo that was like off the charts awesome and it was just inspiring to hear and I remember I would go right behind the theater on this balcony and I would put my earbuds in and I would listen to this and by the end of it I was focused enough to do it well but I and I remembered one time I'd like not really charged my iPod and I was like I don't think I can do the show if I don't listen to this song <laughs> I have to hear it. I was kind of freaking out you know and, yeah but it, it, it was talking about that level of being able to produce when you're comfortable you know uh, and I don't I think you can achieve that but it gets harder and I would imagine that for people who get famous you know you hear these stories about them flipping out on a set or they lock themselves in their trailer and they have to do this weird routine right. I kind of get it oh yeah because I'm like well if they're going to be good enough to like be in a movie and win an Oscar and do that that level of work like Meryl Streep crap you know that stuff yeah you might need to get a little weird or a little rude you know and take the time to get there of course once people are pushing and pulling at you and you're in LA and it's crazy so I get it that's why I'm saying Orlando 
Yeah. That's great. <laughs> it's an easy breezy. I'm good. I'm never freaking out. Yeah. But I, I had a taste. It wasn't famous or anything, but like I remember doing that show. I was like, if I don't listen to this song, I'm no good. Right. Yeah. And it turned out those people were super cool, and like it was just another. Play. But you were ready to flip out if you didn't get your seven minute guitar solo. Yeah. Yeah. I really was. Yeah. It was like I had married that song to the idea of success in this show. Right. Even though it wasn't even in the show, you know, it wasn't a moment in the show that mattered. It was right. before. Because once I got out there, it was just wild and crazy. Yeah. Right. But, but it mattered for you. To me, as a performer, it totally did. So you had mentioned before um, putting putting Django Reinhardt on, like when you go go right and stuff. So absolutely. So obviously, um, and then with the with the solo going into the one man show and everything. So obviously, so so music seems to kind of have a have a big place in your personal creation even though you don't necessarily play music yourself right you 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 do seem to utilize it in order to fuel your own kind of creation yeah it's definitely a a way to focus for me Mm -hmm. it it's something to focus on that's very specific you know and uh i get in my own way mentally a lot you know, I'll think too hard about things. And so I've just gotten to a point now, having performed for so many years, I have to get to the point where I'm not thinking at all. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Which is extreme, but then, you know, then it's just, then everything's, you know, so I, uh, and I've had a lot of friends, you know, even in my personal life, they're like, oh man, nothing bothers you. Like nothing, everything just seems easy breezy. And I'm like, well, yeah, because the opposite of that is the other option. Right. It's complete and utter <laughs> chaos. Right. I'm either a complete mess or free and breezy right you know? so the music for me has always been something that gives me a point to focus on that's not myself I can't get in my own way because I just get into the music interesting and then I'm ready to go and kind of you know I, and I found that listening to stuff before shows especially scripted material mm-hmm. with improv it's for me it's different and we can just be shoot the shit in the green room and that's good enough for me yeah. you know because that that diverts from me thinking as well right know? but well like you said it's kind of it's own form of jazz i think yeah. that's what we do in the green room is kind of that yeah and and i think that that jazz and classical is so expressive that it's easy to use those for me it's easy to use those as those focus songs you know mm-hmm. and um i used to listen to the amadeus soundtrack all the time because yeah. i had done that play and they used the recordings from the movie as the underscore which is like probably totally illegal but (laughs) it didn't matter right you know and uh and i remember it like i would just listen to the music from the play before the play Mm -hmm. because it would kind of like this is gonna happen and then this is gonna happen and you know that it helped me yeah kind of map the emotional journey that was gonna happen because that's an extreme one you know that's like all over the place right there's some pretty heavy moments in there and everybody has you know i was I'll work with actors and they're like, I don't know if I can do this. And I'm like, well, we all have the same ingredients. Like, we all have the capability to feel anything as humans. It doesn't matter what your personal experience is. Right. I'm not asking you to remember when you died. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Right. I'm just asking you to relate to why this was written or felt. And, you know? Yeah. So if you can just wipe away... Like, David Mamet has a great thing about putting um, a a doormat in front of a theater in True and False one of his two acting books that contradict each other mm-hmm. but in True and False <laughs> which is the good one he says uh, actors should wipe their feet on the way into the theater they should wipe away their problems and then embrace the ones in the script mm. because it's not therapy 
And right. I know a lot of actors who feel the exact opposite. They're right. like, my grandma just died. I need to act. I gotta work. I, I need to cry about this. this in that. Right. You know? And yeah. his thing was, I don't want to watch you cry about your grandma. I want to watch you cry about the stuff that's on the page that I wrote. Yeah. In because there's, it's not true. You know, if you muddle it with your own stuff. Sure. I guess. And yeah. I, but I get that. Like, I've always had better success. I've had all kinds of awful things happen to me, but I didn't need those to make me good in a play. Right. I just read it and went, oh, man, this part's sad. And then I was sad. You know, so I, I think that for me, again, that helps to kind of you listen to the song at the beginning. It wipes away. That's the wiping of the feet for me. Like, it gets the all the Joel stuff out. Yeah. I'm never crying about my problems on stage. Right. You know? Yeah. I, I, you can completely just do your job, which is much simpler. If you just read the thing and then try to do it the, as honestly as you can, you don't have to sit there and make yourself cry. Right. It's not a... It's not like that. No. You know? Absolutely. I, my secret is I just... I don't... Exp- I don't... Uh, experience emotion in real life. Oh yeah. So there's yes, you know. yes, yes, yes. That does <laughs> so also. Work. I don't. So there's nothing I can bring to the stage because I <laughs> yeah. I block all emotions on it's a day to day basis anyway. You're a sociopath. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's yeah, yeah, basically yeah. what I'm saying. That's basically. Yeah. Then you're a great liar because I've seen you feel all sorts of fake emotions. Well, you know, it's funny in the last show that uh, I I don't know what Mamet would say about this. I, I guess I didn't bring anything from my real life except that um, you know I did constellations with. Gemma oh, yeah, with yeah. my wife and and it was a two person show and she uh, throughout the piece is dying of brain cancer <sighs> and so there was I, I wasn't bringing anything from my own life into it but on stage in front of an audience I was watching my wife die mm-hmm. every single night for about four weeks yeah and that elicited a very real emotion right. that that kind of i guess bled into happened to be beneficial happened that's an extreme circumstance though because it's like if it wasn't her would you be tempted to think of Gemma in that you know what i'm saying would you in yeah those, and i don't and i don't think that i have to. i don't think i would have right i, I don't i'm because i'm not you, it almost made you you were forced oh, I have to. to do yeah what mammoth said not to do but you know, that's that, there's a lot of layers to that. But I, yeah, exactly. I don't know if it's the same thing, uh, or, or I don't know if it's exactly what he's saying. You I, know, I would imagine. I I wonder what it would have been like. like. Let's say you and Gemma do this show in New York, you know, for a year, yeah. and she gets sick, and the understudy goes in. If that night, I wonder what that night would be like. I don't think it would be the same at all. I think it would be very difficult. Yeah, that would be. Uh, you know, I always wonder that about the uh, pieces like Constellations. You know, that are so intimate yeah uh, and then you, uh, and then what happens when you switch it up you know well I think I think you get yourself to a point though I think I personally I think Mamet is right in that uh, I you know you 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 take what's on the stage what's given to you from the script and on the stage and the circumstances of what's inside the theater and uh, and you 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 react to that and yeah. that's why you rehearse and that's why you get to know you know uh, yeah going back to Cal arts I, I always remember um, uh, being told that you you have to you have to fall in love with your scene partner a little bit you know what I mean sure and and that doesn't mean that you're in love with them that yeah. doesn't mean that you're gonna you know go out and, and have extramaritals or do any of that yeah. stuff but it's like if you are especially in a scene where it's like the 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 characters that you're playing are 
are together and they're intimate or their husband and wife, husband yeah. and husband, whatever it is. It's like you have to find personally something about your partner that, that you can to love love about yeah, them. Yeah, absolutely. And utilize that. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so uh, in the case of Constellations at, at Mad Cow, it was just like, oh, well, that's... You Done. know, I already love this person. Done. You know, and but but it was within the context of the theater that I was that I was viewing her across the stage as somebody who was suffering through this awful situation. Yeah. Um, and she also just happened to have my wife's face. Right. You know. Um, had somebody else been cast in the role, I think that I could have gotten to a certain level, starting yeah. from the very beginning. Right. Although we we. Gemma and I didn't have to go through all of the awkwardness that most actors have to go through of like yeah. getting to know each other and then like oh uh, you know we're kissing on Thursday so get ready guys we're and gonna mark the kiss today. yeah we're gonna mark through it and everybody's gotta give you know and it was just like we were able to start from a level of comfortability that right. we could just kind of jump in and go like oh great we've just done two weeks of work you know or we've eliminated yeah. two weeks of work because we were already comfortable like getting two inches from each other and, right you that's know, not a thing that's not a thing and then and, and when you work with people who are really good like really good you know every now and then you work with somebody you're like oh man this, yeah. this person's great and you realize that they just do that mm-hmm. and, and and it's shocking yeah but you know that's it's demand you have to do that and yeah. then, but it's shocking when you work with people that are that good I was and gonna, they just and they almost force you to do it too it's like it's not even a thing you have to rise to it yeah and if you don't you're probably not going to be there yeah <laughs> anymore have you ever done um i'm sure you have but can you think of a, a time when you uh have been on stage with somebody whether it was like scripted first day of rehearsal or whatever or in an improv scene where the other person was just i mean it just forced you to be better because you were just like whoa this is a level of performance oh, yeah. that I've not well my whole yeah experience or that's that's that my you don't favorite. get a lot that's the best yeah you know that is the best um, yeah I mean uh, my whole first like year at SAC mm-hmm. uh, was a series of those moments oh okay because I didn't know any of you uh, and and just kind of came in right and so I didn't know I just did the same thing every time you know with the same attitude of well I'm just gonna go for it and figure this out as I go. But then, you know, and not to name names because this is a very small town, but like <laughs> it, it happened that I would go, oh man, this person, you know? Yeah. And I actually, it was great for me because I was the outsider and I didn't have a history with these people. You know, I hadn't taken the classes with them or I hadn't been in the other group and then this group. So there was no political bullshit attached to me. Mm-hmm. I was just the new one. And so I think I got people's best. Sure. Because they didn't know what I was going to do, and they knew I probably wasn't going to steamroll anybody or do anything rude. Right. So they got to do what they wanted to do, and I would just kind of play everybody's game with them. Yeah. But it was awesome. I, that's how I learned how to improvise, was from you and everybody else, because then you realize who's good. Right. And that's how you figure out what to do, you know, and yeah. how to build scenes and how to be a better partner and listener. And it just so happened to line up with how I view performing in general mm-hmm. which is why Mike Carr allowed me to go there you know because I had worked with him as a scripted actor enough times that he was like oh Joel just kind of already gets a lot of the things that he will realize later are very important about improv right and, and I thank him for that all the time you yeah. know his trust with that but as far as on stage acting you know mm-hmm. we did um, 
we did Three Sisters, the Chekhov show, back at CalArts, just to use an example of where we both were. Sure. And they, uh, if you remember, occasionally they would bring in actors uh, to act with. I don't know if they did that when you were there, actually, but when I was there, they had a long uh, list of basically friends of the faculty that they brought in to do the shows with us. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I don't and remember so, that. And uh, so they were also doing a production of King Lear that was pretty huge, all female. So the faculty turned into like this A-list of female actresses you know, that they brought out to live and work at CalArts so that they could then be in King Lear. Wow. Yeah, it was awesome, though, because I reaped all the benefits. Like, I had nothing to do with, clearly, the all-male King Lear, or the all-female King Lear, but I was there when they were all brought in. Uh, But we did this, uh, we did Three Sisters, and I was uh, playing Andre, and we had two guests come in and act. Uh, And they were were pretty good, Mm -hmm. you know? Like, they were... One guy was, like, from Star Trek. He had done a thousand episodes of Star Trek or something. Yeah. But the problem was we knew how good they were, and they weren't uh, trying. Right. And and I desperately wanted to see it. Then one night, James Cromwell came to see Three Sisters. Okay. Because I think he had dated the director. <laughs> Did you work with Joan McIntosh? Uh, I recognize the name, but I, no. She was an acting teacher there during the King Lear time. And brilliant. Totally, like, esoteric and just eccentric. And she would bring just odd things. Mm-hmm. So we, we did this production of Three Sisters. We rehearsed it for an entire semester. So it was incredibly overly rehearsed. We had this guy from Star Trek who was phoning it in. Yeah. Except the night that <laughs> James Tom Okay. Okay. Everybody acted as hard as they possibly could. That right. Night. And it was amazing because the kids in my class were trying harder than I'd ever seen. And I was kind of like, how dare all of you hold yeah. back until today? Just oh, you're capable the, of this? Just because the farmer from Babe is here, you're right. going to try? Yeah. And it was funny because he's like 6'5 or 6'6. Six, six. He's huge. Yeah. And the chairs, this was in the Butler building. I don't know if you remember the Butler building. I do remember but the Butler building. But they are not theaters. No. So they set up folding chairs in there. Yep. And he was not comfortable sitting in them, so he stood the whole show. Oh, so he was So he towered present. over. Oh, yeah. yeah. All you could see was that'll do pig standing <laughs> in the back. And, uh... And that's when the Star Trek guy turned it on. Sure. And I was like, oh, shit. And it was awesome. Because yeah. it was like, I don't even belong with you. I didn't know. He was really good. Right. And it made everybody got better. Like you said, everyone was was asked to meet his level of right. quality. Yeah. And I kind of, it was fun because he was going for it. But then at the same time, I was like, you dick, you shouldn't do this till now. Exactly. You know? Exactly. It's a, it's a, it's a bit of a sideways um, example, but it, it, it's sort of uh, in my, in my class that I teach. Um, improv class? In my improv class. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we always, uh, we do warm ups and we play this game. Um, God, this is so this is so like inside baseball a little bit, um, but we play. Uh, Edit it. <laughs> uh, we play. We play these warm-up games, and we. Um, uh, I, so I introduce uh, Zoom Schwartz Pifigliano, you know, and it's just a, it's an energy passing game, and it's just very simple, and you know, it's something that I do every single week as kind of a way to just get us into our rhythm for the rest yeah. of the class or whatever. Um, but then, like in the third or fourth week, I'll uh, introduce the. Uh, the concept of eliminating 
if you hesitate, if you miss something, if you do something wrong, if you're not energetic enough, I'll eliminate you from the game. And it's amazing how all of a sudden everybody gets really good at it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Which is ridiculous. And they physically change, you know? And I'm sorry if any students are listening up to this point and, I, and you feel like I'm calling you out, but I call you out in the class so yeah, you know where this like is coming thing. from. Um, it's my thing, yeah. but it's like, and I point, but I point out immediately because it's it's so expected. Where I go now, there's an actual consequence to this, yeah. And suddenly you're taking it seriously, yeah. You know, and so the challenge becomes: how do you take it this seriously Always. every single time you play yeah. the game? Yeah, that that is that is that is the exact thing that bothers me the most. Yeah, yeah. because I, you know, if you could get people to do that, you'd be the greatest director of all time, right? Always, and every you can single always time. get people to do that. Yep, and to and it makes you as the the leader of that group in that moment so frustrated yeah. that that a you're like, well, where was this? Right, and b you're like, so you were giving me your C game. Yeah, you were. Why? You, what are you wasting your time? You doing? were coasting yeah. on to the next thing because you knew that there were no actual consequences to this. Right. You were going to zoom the wrong person, and we were all going to clap for you, and we were going to start over. Right. You know, but the moment in reality, I s- you you hear just those words, and you're like, "That's so dumb." Right. Why didn't you just try? I'm yeah. Gonna zoom you out, like, like. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Why not go hard? <laughs> but I think you have to experience it. You know, um, the 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 sort of eye-opening moment for me was at CalArts. Uh, Craig Belknap. Yeah. Did a he he did this exercise where we all stood in a circle and. Uh, two people at a time jumped into the middle of the circle and you just had to improvise a scene mm-hmm. and and sort of like hit the emotions hard you know but it was just like it was one of those things where I was kind of known for improv uh, at the time and of course I had known myself as an improviser and so I was just yeah. very much like oh I got this and uh, and so I jumped in and Craig jumped in with me oh, and geez. he looked me in the eye and I my world shattered. Yeah, he's awesome. He made me listen to him. He, in character, in the scene, let me know, like, you need to pay attention to everything that I'm saying because there's going to be a quiz after this. But it was just like, oh, it was just yeah. like, there was something about his energy that was so full on that that I couldn't... Yeah, Craig is the man. I, I could not... Uh, Sit on my laurels. No, because you couldn't default to your your Brett stuff. Yeah, because Craig wouldn't let you. Because yeah. he wouldn't let me. Yeah, because he's the best. Every bit of him was focused on me. Yeah, he's terrifying too. And uh, and and I and and I got done with the exercise and I said to myself, that's that's my goal. Yeah, that's what I want to do. Like to feel, and I think that's the thing. You have to feel it in order to know. Yeah, how to get there. Oh yeah, and he's perfect for that. Uh, and he, he was my first year acting teacher. And you had the first day he made everybody do their audition monologue for the class. He said, "Let's see why you got here." <laughs> and then he made everybody do their audition. So I did my thing, and and he goes, "I bet you were a big deal somewhere real small." <laughs> oh shit! And I looked at him and I said, "That's exactly right." Ah. And I was like, "Oh damn!" He got me on day one. Yep. Like he, Oof. And then at the end of that, he gave me... Yeah, I loved him. He was great. Uh, at the end of uh, that year, I did a run-through of like our final thing, mm-hmm. you know, and I thought I was pretty good in it already. Yeah. And uh, he gave all these notes, and he hadn't really given me anything. And I'm thinking, nailed it. And at the end, and I was like the lead guy, and he goes, Joel, I didn't believe you as a human being, so <laughs> I don't have anything else to say. 
Oh God! And we had like a prospective student sitting in, yeah, on that performance. And I remember looking over at them too, and they were like, "Oh God!" <laughs> As a it human was being, brutal. All I've done is be a human being for my entire like, life. But I was the whole time. <laughs> Even, oh. uh, yeah, he cut me, man. That yeah, guy, he was great. I, I had a. Uh, speaking of things to focus, this is an extreme one, but mm-hmm. I went to. Um, when I was at school, they sent me to be an exchange student the first semester of my last year, and I went to Scotland. Mm-hmm. And they, we were only there for a semester, so they kind of pieced us into a group project that was going on. You know, uh, it happened to be the exact length that we were there, so it was great because we were a part of something that we weren't going in in the middle of anything. You right. know what I mean? Because it's weird to be an exchange student because you're kind of the other one the whole time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they had this Greek workshop. And they did a chorus class with us. Like we would go in and do all these different exercises about how to be a Greek chorus. And I can't remember that he made such an impression. I forgot his name. But they had this <laughs> really great Scottish director that was sort of worked with classical texts in an avant-garde way. Mm-hmm. Which is that's my I love that's my stuff. You know. Sure. I, I until I came back to Orlando and started doing whatever weird career path I'm on now, I really wanted to like stick with like Moliere and, you know, find all just classics. I just kind of wanted to stay there. Right. You know? And so that's where my head was when I was in Scotland. I was thinking that I was going to, this was what I was going to do. Yeah. And uh, so I was digging the, the Greek stuff, but he did this thing where he's like, you have to be, you have to get rid of your ego and you have to get rid of your agenda and become a part of a group and then buy into the spontaneous um, impulses and feel them as a, as a collective, which to me was just such a heady concept that I was immediately into it. I was like, I want to feel that. Yeah. I want to do that. Yeah. And we worked together, uh, you know, we would all stand in a group, like 15 of us or so, and he would clap and expect all of us to look in the same direction. You know, the way birds, when they change formation, you right. know, like if you, if you see geese flying and you clap they'll all switch but they'll all go to the next the next one in the order or whatever it is They're right just thinking as a group yeah 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 and uh you know talk about getting meta but like uh, that's what i love thinking about is this kind of stuff and so he had an exercise where we all s- stood in a circle and he said everyone close your eyes and clap at the same time mm. and he made us sit there until we could do it until you did it and it was a, a large enough group like i said double digits and i have used that successfully two times only and I've tried that same exercise with a lot of groups and I wrote it into a play about actors that we did at the Fringe last year at Merely Players yeah where the director tries to get everybody and people keep clapping at the wrong time or they're like on three and it's like no you can't not like that yeah but the two times that I've done it successfully is with a group of kids under the age of 10 a large group of kids that did it yeah because I told them the goal of how to win Mm -hmm. and they didn't do it immediately. They did it. I think they did it probably five tries, let's say. Right. But this is like 20 kids. Yeah. Uh, and I, I had to take over the class for the day, and I was like, you know what, guys, this is a lot of energy in here, so let's see if we can do something. And they're like, we can do anything. And I'm like, okay, this is hard, you know. <laughs> but so they did it, and the only other time was when I was in Shanghai with, with Disney, mm. and I had to teach an improv class to. Um, like 15 Chinese actors through an interpreter. Wow. And they were doing improv. And so like she, the interpreter, she would tell me what they were saying in the scene 
but I would hear it after they had already said it. So the moment that they meant was over. So it was just bad. Yeah. And there was no way I could get everybody on the same page through this interpreter. And I said, you know what? We're going to do this thing. Right. That I did in college. And I want to see if we can do it. And then she explains it. But because it was a nonverbal, they didn't have to hear or wait. They, we all stood. We closed our eyes, which made them, they, did, they were very self-conscious about yeah. how they were looking and standing. That got rid of that. And it was just, let's all feel this moment together. And I, it was kind of a roll of the dice. And I, and I was in a, it was my first class with them and all my bosses, like there were like imagineering people there deciding whether or not I was a good or a bad right fit for this role. Sure. And I throw that out. And I remember looking at the person who kind of brought me there and he was like, oh, okay. God, what are you doing? <laughs> this is one of those moments yeah. that you really mess up. And they... They did it faster than I've ever seen anyone do it. Right. But they did it on, like, the second try. We had one where everybody got, oh, okay, that's what it is. And I reminded them, I said, no, don't don't do it. Don't be the one to start it. It has to be that we all do it at the same time. Right. And I'll be damned if we didn't all clap at the same time. And everyone opened their eyes, and I looked up, and all those people in the back were, like, walking out. Which I knew meant, oh, he, they trust me with the room. He got now. it, right. Yeah, and I, in my mind, was like, I will never do that again. Do that was th- the perfect moment. Yeah, that's what you needed. Do it you think so it's, cool. um, it, in those two groups, do you think it's a lack of ego? I think the, the combination of circumstances lined up to, yes, take ego completely out of both of those situations in, in that moment. Kids under 10 generally don't have ego to contend with. Certainly. In terms yeah. of like worrying about what's correct or how they're going to come across or any number of other things that correct. we sort Under of ten. yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's, I mean, I think that age probably gets younger every year because of right the way society is and how yeah. old little kids are now. Right, but it's <laughs> right. terrifying what even my own children know about that I wish they didn't. Right, like man, I didn't. I was too dumb to feel this. Right, you know, but but, in, but yeah, I do. I think the lack of ego for single digit kids. But also, like in that, I mean, not to not to like stereotype or anything, but it it does seem like sort of in that the Chinese culture and stuff, like it does feel like it's a culture that really values the the unit or the group or the family or the community. Oh, they have to. I mean, it's they have to suffer because yeah. of it. You so know? it's like so so even within that, it's just sort of like. Well, it was a combination. Yeah, and there's a complacency I found uh, with a lot of those guys. I got to know, know them pretty well. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was day one, but like the more I figured it out, like they they would get bored or have whole times where they wouldn't try because they knew that they weren't going to get fired. Right. Because they're like, well, I'll just get a different job because everybody gets a job. So, so whatever. <laughs> and it was hard to motivate. Yeah. It wasn't that I thought they were lazy. I didn't think they were lazy. I thought they knew they didn't have to try. Right. I, I saw them try sometimes, and and uh, but I gave them a game. Right. And I gave them a challenge. I bet you can't achieve this level of selflessness of unity with this group which is the whole point of like every group of course you know is to be a part of it so but it was neat to watch them focus and i think the kids and those those 17 young chinese men in those moments they felt the same thing and that's why they got it yeah you know they did it better than any other group i've ever had so let's uh we're getting kind of near the end here so let's uh let's let's how how do we take this conversation and kind Mm. of draw a bridge back to to django well, I mean, I think that he, a lot of the ideas that we have touched on, that's kind of what he ended up with. I don't know how deliberately, mm-hmm. but I, I think that his short but amazing career is a collection of moments where he found 
a way to communicate honestly yeah. without any inhibitions, without any things to suffer. You know, he was do- we are listening to his best, you yeah. know, or at least, you know, that moment. And uh, I admire that. I think anyone who can achieve that, as long as they do, can get there without hurting anyone else. Right. I think that's awesome. Yeah. So for me, when I write, I like to put this kind of music on. I like to make this kind of coffee. I tried to get you to take a bath with me. Uh, there was too much electronic equipment to take a bath. Behind the scenes, if anyone's still listening, I originally said, well, I want... I, I sometimes brainstorm by, like, running a hot bath. I take a jazz bath. <laughs> I drink the coffee. I take notes, and then I get out of the bathtub, and then I write. Yeah. And, and I thought it would be really cute if we were sitting in the bathtub yeah. for this whole thing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know why you, you insisted on still getting naked for the entire interview, but... Um, I don't either. <laughs> no, I mean, certainly it's like whether or not, you know, uh, you you listen to the music or like for me, it's not, you know, jazz. I, I, I've i listened to jazz. I've taken the, the, the requisite courses in college, yeah. and, you know, and I've seen the, the Ken Burns documentary and stuff. Um, but but there is there is definitely something to the fact that even listening to this music now spurred on a conversation about art and our sure. personal philosophy for it and I think that yeah. only comes because that that philosophy is so prevalent in this music itself yeah, yeah I mean and, and when you find out that this music is played by a you know deformed gypsy right <laughs> stereotypical French deformed gypsy you know it's your run of the mill chicken stealer <laughs> when you find that out and you go oh he composed this ditty during World War II when he had already been captured and then put back in and made yeah. to be made to perform in a tuxedo every night in this club for rich people who might kill people just like him right you know yep. and then you listen to that same song and you're like oh man wow there is some levity to this there is some meat to this yeah. that's not necessarily what the song is but it is what i'm hearing right you know well and he was you know uh forms it to draw a very weak parallel between what we were talking about or what i was talking about with my with zoom schwartz perfigliano and yeah, the baby. holocaust <laughs> um i'm with you he was uh you see where i'm going <laughs> oh really. yeah uh he he there were times where he had to play for his life yeah you know and, totally. and definitely, I think the the realization that he had sometimes, like the soldier recognizing him and sending him back and saying, like, yeah. you need to go back to Paris. You know, there were times in his life where it was like, I have to keep doing this in order to survive. Well, yeah. And if that happens, then it's like, well, I bet, I, I mean, does he, what does he mean by that? Like, if I stop playing, am I going to, you know? Right. Bet, just what that would do to you. Right. Uh, and, and I'm shocked that there is not, and maybe there is, and I just haven't seen it, but like, that there isn't a major biography, biographic movie. Right. With a huge star playing Django. Oh, it's like, significant. Because, I, you know, the more I learned about it, I'm like, this is so meaty. Right. You know, just the cast of characters. And, yeah. You know, uh, it, it is really a, a, a fascinating thing. It's, it, for me, literally inspirational. That's why I listen to it so yeah. often, because I'm like, well, man, this guy's awesome. To continue my parallel, because that I don't, I don't want it to sound like I'm at all saying that being put in a concentration camp is like being eliminated from a Conservatory 1 improv class. But... The fact that he experienced those moments for playing for his own life, yeah. but but in the moments that he didn't, either before or after that, it seems like he still gave the same 
the same amount of him, the same percentage of himself, which yeah. was 100. 124. 124%. Yeah. It's I mean, been mathematically proven. It's been proven. You know? And I'm so, at 24 hours a day, but yeah. Literally. <laughs> 100%. That's my motto. I'm like, yo, I'm 124. I'm 124, baby. You know, um, and I think there's a, I think, I think there is, there is a lesson in that for fellow artists. I think yeah. there is an inspiration in that where it's like, whether your life depends on it or not yeah throw yourself wholeheartedly into whatever you're and, doing yeah and not with a fear of your life even for just joy because yeah. that's my thing you know it's, it, yeah. it is so lovely to hear or see joy exuded in public yeah. you know any kind it's like you know our job when we direct things is to find problems but it's it's sometimes a more creative way to direct people to find the good things and just pump those up yeah and uh i've had to learn that from better directors than than myself don't just tear apart inspire the good parts and some of the problems will fall away because then it's inspiration well and and if you know i guess it's it's like even if the clarinet is playing a melancholy tune don't be afraid to find the joyful note absolutely on the guitar and that's why i think you know you hear that song you know, and you're like, oh yeah, there's a sadness here, but there's a hope, right? You know, and and, and that is beautiful, and that's right. why I think that song really connected with the people when it did. Yeah. Well, I think you know, and it's making me sort of rethink. Um, you know, uh, yeah. I mean, I think that was New York for me. It was like everybody was playing their clarinets, and it was just like I gotta go find this guitar note. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, and 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 you have those moments in life where you're like, I need to change my game. Yeah. You you can't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You know, if nothing else, here's the message of the episode. Don't be afraid to like, to pluck that joyful note for yourself and just, you know, find it amongst a a sea of melancholy. Yeah. And, 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 and that 100%, there's a term I wrote down a long time ago called terminal velocity. Mm -hmm. It's like when you're free falling so that you're like unaffected, nothing, you're just completely falling, you know? And that is kind of the thing that I you know every morning I'm like here we go you know <laughs> we'll see this yep. may end in, in ashes and flames but it, yeah it will be yeah complete well, like I said uh kind of touched on before but I mean uh, for those of us who know you uh or or kind of got a, to know you a little bit through this episode like I can say for certain 124 <laughs> percent that you you embody that and and it's and it's so inspirational and uh thank you and i thank you for coming on and 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 walking me through this music and pouring me a cup of hazelnut coffee well you know I, throughout life i've always tried to like when you meet cool people spend time with them and stuff yeah and so i'm i was honored that you asked me well, a question <laughs> and then and then wanted to come do this and i think yeah. you're great too so thank I think, you i think the idea behind what you're doing with this is awesome to take things people like and then find out why yeah that makes everybody better and well it'll make everyone who listens to this better too because hopefully these are things people didn't know about and now they know why they're so good yeah you know yeah and hopefully yeah hopefully uh you or know why they disagree or why they disagree <laughs> you, know? you know and yeah if people disagree then they're they're you know feel free to write in and, and tell us why or what you know or other experiences that you had but um but uh in the meantime uh i just want to say thank you again joel it's been a pleasure and uh this is certainly one of the more unique uh, episodes that I've done thus far and uh, and I think we're all better for it. Thank you. Next so. time we'll be in the bath. All right. So long. <laughs>